testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, that's poppy enough. Yep. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals from it. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. Hello, I'm Joseph Iskia. Welcome back to part two of the Talking Urology 2017 USANS Conference Highlights from Canberra. In this podcast, we will hear from international speakers Kevin McVary discussing the new minimally invasive surgical techniques for BPH, Chris Chappell discussing the underactive bladder, and James Easton discussing the role of neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapies in high-risk prostate cancer. Unfortunately, I missed a chance to chat to a couple of the big names before they skipped town. Couldn't go wait to get out of Canberra, apparently. Olivia Traxer had some fantastic tips and tricks on using the laser during stone surgery. And I also missed the always entertaining Professor Prokar Dasgupta discussing what he has learned from 15 years with the robot. He began by asking us to clear our minds of all biases and misconceptions. However, I was lucky enough to catch up with Declan Murphy and Frank Gardner to give us their perspectives on the robot. First, let's hear from Declan. I think uh, Prokar, as, a, as an academic and an editor-in-chief of the BJUI, of course, has a, uh, a perspective on how we conduct these trials. But of course, personally himself, he has conducted a number of randomized trials in robotic surgery, cystectomy in particular. And what he covered here at the USANS meeting was some of the challenges in conducting these studies and how we interpret the results. And referring to the Yaxley study in Brisbane, which of course uh, has been one of the most uh, landscape landmark uh, studies we've had in robotic surgery, uh, he reflected on some of the achievements, first of all, in just completing this study. And I think that's very, very important, Joseph. He, he was um, very complimentary to uh, Frank Gardner and John Yaxley and Jeff Coughlin and team for completing this study. It's, it's a huge achievement to uh, fully accrue this study and read it out. But second, he reflected on why there's been some uh, differing views, I suppose, on the results of this study. And we all have our own way we're going to interpret results depending on our perspectives. But he did circle around and talk about the whole premise for randomized trials in surgery and why we have some challenges in in reading these out. And I think it's very important that we understand that it's very different conducting a randomized trial in surgery versus a randomized control in a medical intervention. Because medical interventions are highly controlled. Uh, We understand that uh, these medications we use are very standardized and the way in which they're dosed in various centers. Whereas surgical studies, uh, we find it very difficult to uh, standardize uh, surgeon heterogeneity. By its very nature, it means that surgeons will be a little bit different uh, and may influence the results of studies. So I think that's what he was reflecting on, wondering whether a randomized study is the correct way to evaluate surgical technique. And he he made a really good point. 15 years ago, he said he was an ardent supporter of robot and how it was vastly superior and he talked about his humbling experience over the next 15 years of realizing that maybe he could have jumped the gun a bit regarding its superiority. Yes and Frank Gardner also from the floor who was at the session of course uh, talked about the truth 
And, uh, and he reflected on this. He said, sometimes we have to uh, move away from our own preconceived opinions, which I think is what Prokar was reflecting on himself, and try and use a correct study design to find the truth. Is this really better? Is it worse? You know, what are the impacts on the patient, et cetera, et cetera? And I think Prokar was quite uh, self-deprecating or self-effacing, really, in, in reflecting himself on his own enthusiasm for an intervention and then actually how everything is panning out for him. And, uh, and I think it does remind us we do need to conduct very good studies here. But he did make a point, didn't he, about um, uh, alternate study designs. And he, he, he quoted a very nice um, comment written by Tim O'Brien, one of his colleagues in London, uh, in the BJUI a few years ago. And, and Tim wondered why Mercedes-Benz don't do randomized controlled trials. Uh, why don't Mercedes-Benz uh, uh, do a randomized trial of the old E-Class up against the new E-Class? They're telling us it's lighter, it's more fuel efficient, it's more spacious on the inside. And we all go out and buy one of those. Uh, or you do, Joe. I drive a Toyota Yaris, <laughs> as you know. But, uh, um, I'm Tesla. Yes, Tesla. you're a Tesla guy. Okay. Um, so wh- but wh- where is the, the evidence to show the new one's better than the old one? And the point being in that in that in that piece that Tim O'Brien wrote, he said that industry uses uh, different methods to show that something new is better than something old, and they don't use a randomized design. They use a thing called statistical process control (SPC), and it, it's just a way in which we can measure incremental improvements and show it's better than the old thing. And I think that there might be lessons in that. How, why if we use um, a new energy device, a ligature, is that better than the old energy device? We don't have randomized evidence there either. Uh, but we all know some things are just better than the old thing. And, and I think that's what Prokar was, uh, was, was uh, saying in his state-of-the-art piece that, yes, of course, a randomized control thing is, trial is a very pure thing, but it may well be that because of limitations in surgeon heterogeneity and all these sorts of studies, uh, we should be looking at other ways of measuring quality and measuring incremental improvement to see if things we introduce in surgery are truly better. All right, so I don't own a Tesla. I thought it just sounded more environmentally friendly. The fact that it's still more expensive than a Mercedes was lost on me at the time. Declan was as eloquent and convincing as ever, and a known robot advocate. So I thought I would try to find someone to provide some balance, and who better than senior author of Australia's landmark open versus robotic prostatectomy trial, Frank Gardner. Frank makes a great point that he is not anti-robot, but he is anti-hype. Frank has a long and distinguished research career, and he always says, show me the evidence. But robotic trials are hard to do. Maybe we should just abandon them, Frank. Joseph, they are hard to do and they often take a long time to complete. But we should uh, identify the the things that really are important and we should address them and we should address them as rigorously as we can. And that means randomised controlled trials because that is the way we will obtain the truth about things. And it's a truth that matters. So I asked Frank, What does he think of the robot? The robot is wonderful technology, it's undeniable. Um, Certainly our 12 weeks results did not show an advantage in terms of the primary outcomes, although there were some differences in secondary outcomes. But uh, these were not as pronounced as people might like to say. So what are the broader implications of the, the robot debate though? The broader implications relate to uh, whether it's uh, it's something that we should embrace instead of open surgery. My concern is that it's silly to replace, try to replace open surgery. Uh, I think that based on our 12-week data and indeed our longer-term data may be different because we have an open mind, 
but based on our 12-week data, it's the excellence of the surgeon that matters. And Frank makes one more very pertinent point for the broader implications. The other thing is, if we uh, endorse unilaterally robotic surgery and we find that the evidence is equivocal, what we are saying to third world countries is that they must follow us. And that has a devastating effect for health, uh, health budgets worldwide. And I think this is something we have to bear in mind in terms of, of getting overawed with uh, one technology or another. It doesn't just apply to robotic surgery. Thanks very much to Declan and Frank for filling the very big shoes of Procar. Next, I caught up with Kevin McVary from Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, who gives us the highlights of his talk on the new minimally invasive treatments for BPH. Well, one of the focuses of of my practice and, and urology itself is where do where does the minimally invasive surgical treatment fit to what we already do, um, what's called a mist therapy. And, and I think it's a controversial point because these are, in some ways, newer technology kind of busting their way into our more traditional algorithm. One of the things I, I mentioned this morning um, was about why are people attract, why are patients and physicians attracted to these new technologies and 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 the my my feeling is that they're attractive because of the reduced risk of changes in sexual function there is a cost when you're when you have less risk and that's that you probably have less less impact so the things that a urologist may care about improving the symptoms improving the flow with some low level but definite risk of change in sexual function, it's a bit of a trade-off for a patient where he may accept not such robust outcomes if he can reduce his risk. So balance impact versus risk. And when patients do that, they tend to choose less risk. So one of the things I think that drives this, again, is is not what they do, it's what they don't do, and they don't impact sexual function. Your thoughts on the Eurolift? Well, it's a you know very innovative technique, and for a niche prostate, it's got some distinct advantages. It improves symptoms and does not impact uh, sexual function, at least by every measure that we make. What are some of the newer techniques or agents coming through? So um, one in America that is catching on is convective vapor therapy, water vapor called Resume, where you inject into the transition zone a small amount of steam, water converted to steam, and it stays within the transition zone. So Resume has durable results out to two years, but as is always the way, there is something newer and fancier on the horizon. There is a a very innovative idea about it's called protox and it's a fusion protein that is activated into a apoptosis creating impact on the prostate and it's activated by PSA it's really a cool idea it takes about literally two minutes to do in the office it is absolutely simple so the prostate can be steamed microwaved baked burnt fried and now seasoned with Protox. It's a veritable cooking class of flow improvement. But what about strangling it? What does Kevin think of prostatic artery embolisation? 
There's a problem with that technique. Um, uh, I should say those studies. They're poorly designed studies, and you really can't, there really aren't good control groups, so you really don't know how are you really changing it for the man. I mean, you, you always have to say, oh, this is an improvement compared to what? Well, I like what I hear. But what are the real issues with prostatic artery embolization? Is that they're not urologists doing the procedures. They really don't under, they really have not demonstrated an understanding of what drives lower urinary tract symptoms. In their mind, and in many of those studies, it's like if you have a prostate, we're going to infarct it. Well, we know that prostate's not the whole story on LUTs. In fact, it's a fraction of it. LUTs is a much more complex problem. So what are you really treating when you're embolizing? And, and guess what? The PSA drops and then it comes back, right back to where it used to be. To me, that says problem with durability. Kevin was very generous with his time. So this is an edited version of his highlights. Please go to the website talkingurology.com.au for the full version. So let's get an Australian perspective with Henry Wu. Let's start with the Eurolift. It has some very definite advantages in some men. But how does he interpret the 23% retreatment rate? It's very easy to criticise the uh, high, what, what is seemingly high retreatment rate, but it all comes, to down, comes down to uh, um, a trade-off with the benefits associated with that technology. Now, a, a particular feature of the Eurolift technology is the fact that there is no uh, diminution of sexual function. So therefore, if you have a man who, for whom uh, sexual function is material concern, then they may well be very prepared to accept a 23% or even greater risk of uh, failure at, say, four or five years. And what does Henry think of Resume and its water vapour? Um, the data so far has uh, primarily been in glands that are at le- less than 80 cc's. And um, in a similar way to the Eurolift, it's actually demonstrated preservation of sexual function. The magnitude of improvement in, uh, in symptom scores is not dissimilar. However, there does seem to be uh, um, perhaps a slightly um, improved uh, uh, flow rate improvement um, compared to uh, what we see with Eurolift. So, do we have it in Australia? It's not yet available in Australia, but we're on the brink of having it uh, uh, reach our shores. I just couldn't help myself. I asked Henry what he thought of prostatic artery embolisation, and he was very diplomatic about the readouts of the trials. When, when you see results that are too good to be true, then um, quite often that turns out to be exactly the case. But one of the, one of the big problems about PAE is, is the way in which they define technical success as well as uh, uh, clinical success. And they use parameters which are not... Um, which are not uh, uh, commonly used in, uh, Euro, in the urological literature. So what, a radi- what, a, what, a, what an interventional radiologist may consider to be a um, clinically successful outcome uh, does not sort of match what we would necessarily call a clinically successful outcome. Are you seeing many patients around Sydney getting PAU? It is certainly available in Sydney, um, but, uh, uh, it, uh, is not being, but it's not being conducted in uh, quite an organised fashion as it is in the, at the Wesley Hospital, uh, where there is good cooperation with the urologists. Anything new you'd want to see or think we will see in the near future? What's on the horizon? 
the, there are a number of what other... What excites reasons. you most? Well, I have to say the resume technology does excite me, but we need more uh, clinical data. I'm especially interested in uh, seeing the um, <clears throat> seeing how well resume uh, um, benefits men in larger glands, in particular glands over eight, uh, greater than 80 cc's. We know with the Urolift that it's going to it's, it's challenging uh, with the very large glands. Um, to, to, to be fair, it hasn't been tested in that group, and uh, we haven't seen published outcomes in that. But uh, just from my own personal experience, um, I think that uh, that particular group is going to be a challenge uh, to treat. Now, we'd resume, because you're relying upon the dissipation of uh, uh, water vapour through the gland, it intuitively you would think that uh, prostate size is going to be less of a, uh, uh, less of a barrier to uh, successful treatment. Thanks, Henry, who's here to tell us that size doesn't matter. Next, I grabbed Chris Chappell from Middlesex in the UK, who is one of the world's doyens of the misbehaving bladder. Here are his highlights on the underactive bladder and some of our misconceptions about the target organ or mechanism of action of the usual medications for the overactive bladder. Certainly, detrusor underactivity is a very important condition which increases with age affecting around 30 to 50 percent of people over the age of 65 to 70 and it's one of those sort of conditions unless you actually consider its presence you won't necessarily recognize it and it's clearly important because if the bladder's not working properly then it can lead on to both storage and voiding symptoms and be misconstrued as being either overactive bladder or in fact blood outlet obstruction. Conventional concept about the detrusor muscle being the most important target for therapy is in fact rather a simplification. In fact, we now understand in 2017 that the major target for many therapies is the sensory mechanisms, uh, which involves not only the peripheral innovation, uh, sensory innovation at the level of the um, urethelium and subethereal plexus, but also, of course, the spinal cord and the central mechanisms. And in fact, all of our existing therapies work predominantly on those levels, although most people think that they're working on the detrusor muscle. Now, clearly, you can have a completely clapped out detrusor, and obviously that will be important if there's underactivity, but in many cases, it's in fact a more subtle problem, which is related to aging affecting the innovation. Okay. So it's common, it can be hard to diagnose. Can we do anything about it if we do diagnose it? Well, I think the first thing is to be aware of it as a possibility, because obviously you won't diagnose it as you think about it. And so if somebody's got a large residual, always bear in mind it may not just be outlet obstruction, but in fact may be impaired contractility. And that could be related to the detrusor muscle, or more commonly due to the sensory uh, innovations and neuroanatomical factors. So what can you do about it? Well, clearly if a patient's got a, an increased residual, think in terms of the voiding efficiency. And you, the voiding efficiency is where you relate the residual to the functional capacity, which is the voided volume plus the residual, which first of all you can't diagnose unless you use a bladder diary. And that's in all the guidelines, although many people don't tend to use these or think about them. Having done that, if you've got a voiding efficiency of 40%, which is a threshold, in other words, that's a residual of 200 with a functional capacity of 500, for instance, 
then you, you can see if the patient is symptomatic or not. If they're not symptomatic, then it's reasonable just to uh, observe the situation, probably with yearly ultrasound, check the upper tracts and so on. If, however, they've got a larger residual and symptomatic, then intermittent self-catheterization is the easiest thing to do. The gut reaction people have with residuals is to start catheterization. Often it's not necessary. It's just a matter of um, careful observation in the patient. And has Chris enjoyed his trip to Australia? Yes, I always do. It's great. I've got so many friends here in Australia and it's always great to make so many new friends. And I must say that we're very proud of the strong link we have with USANS at the European Association Urology. And we've certainly increased our strong collaboration together in recent years, not only in terms of many members of USANS becoming joint members of the AU, but the adoption of the AU guidelines by USANS and our collaborative work together on that, along with our collaborative work on patient information, Fantastic. And that's a great point you make. Our USANS membership does now get us an EAU membership with all the associated yeah. benefits. And a technical point for the USANS members. You have to go into your online account and tick the box confirming that you are happy to have your details shared with the EAU. It's not automatic. And where did Chris get that number of 23% prevalence? Could it be from an Australian study? Could it be our very own Johan Garni? The intrigue's killing me. Here's Johan. My paper was, uh, we looked at the incidence of diffuser uh, underactivity in patients who've had urodynamic studies, and we found that 23% of consecutive patients in were di- diagnosed with diffuser underactivity. So it's actually a very prevalent condition. So it's a very common condition that's uh, probably under-recognized. What's your treatment approach to these patients, just in broad strokes? What are the big, broad categories you like? Um, so the broad categories are uh, some patients can just be observed, some patients may need to do self-catheterization. We know sacral neuromodulation has a role. Uh, other surgical treatments like TRP may also have a limited role. Um, so if, uh, if a patient has had chronic retention for a long time, has minimal symptoms, hasn't had ever any complications, then you can practically just observe these patients. Those that you're more concerned about, the younger ones who already have symptoms or some symptoms, intermittent self-catheterization is very uh, useful in them. We also know TURP may have a limited role in some men. Uh, there's been very interesting papers by a Japanese group. Uh, it shows good short-term results in terms of IPSS improvement uh, at three months uh, on their initial paper, but they followed it up to 12 years. And they actually found that the symptom, the IPF, IPSS improved up to seven years, but beyond that, it reverts back to the original score. So for some reason, the the postulated reason is that these patients, as they get older, they probably cannot effectively strain as good as what they used to. So TRP can reduce the outlet resistance, but as the men get older, they cannot sustain the same amount of efficient straining. As a functional urologist, what's the the one bit of advice or what's the one key mistake that non-functional urologists make when they do eventually, when the patients eventually come to see you? So it's the diagnosis that's the key thing. Very, it can be very difficult to diagnose uh, underactive bladder or detrusor underactivity. The only real, reliable method is to do urodynamic study, but it's impractical to do urodynamic study on everybody. So you have to have a high degree of suspicion. So patients who have both voiding symptoms and also storage symptoms, they, they may not just have the overactive bladder, you gotta have a, especially if they're old, they have risk factors like lower back surgery, pelvic surgery, um, neurogenic uh, history. So all of that, if you're suspicious that they have um, 
uh, uh, under active bladder, then they, they may have it. For, for example, some patients who do not improve after overactive bladder medications, you have to wonder, am I, did I get the diagnosis right? Thanks, Johan. For more information, go to his website, www.futileterping.com. Next, I spoke to James Easton, Chief of Urology at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, who spoke about neoadjuvant and adjuvant treatments for high-risk prostate cancer. He starts by discussing the treatment options. Um, from the standpoint of clinically localized high-risk prostate cancer, the standards of care are either radiation plus hormones or surgery. Those are both accepted treatment strategies and should be in the conversation of any man that's uh, discussing his options for care in that setting. And do we have any proven adjuvant treatments in high-risk prostate cancer? I certainly in the, um, in the radiotherapy world, uh, standard of care is a combination of radiation plus hormones. Um, there are some issues with what's the appropriate dose of radiation therapy, what's the duration of uh, hormonal therapy, but fairly standard in the radiation oncology world that combination therapy is beneficial compared to either strategy alone, either radiation alone or hormones alone. And what about in surgery? So far, no. Um, what have they we've, tried? We've primarily looked at relatively short courses, three to eight months of neoadjuvant standard hormonal therapy and LHRH agonists typically uh, before radical prostatectomy. While there were some histologic benefits, there were no longer-term benefits in terms of meaningful outcomes like biochemical recurrence or clinical progression. So radical prostatectomy as a standalone procedure is considered standard of care for clinically localized high-risk disease. And what study have we got running at the moment that you hope might show it? So there's a couple of studies that are, that are ongoing. So there is a completely accrued neoadjuvant chemotherapy trial looking at docetaxel plus radical prostatectomy versus radical prostatectomy alone. Uh, that study hopefully will report out at least a biochemical endpoint uh, in the next year or so. And there are also um, what I think are very important studies comparing uh, adjuvant to salvage radiation therapy in patients with higher risk pathologic features, really to determine whether adjuvant truly is better than waiting until the patient shows at least signs of biochemical recurrence and then instituting radiation therapy at that time. In the localized but high risk, it's going to be less than 10% likely. But for that small subset of patients, they're likely to show a benefit as well and perhaps neoadjuvant strategies in that population um, of selected patients will aid in precision medicine, as you mentioned. Thanks, James. And that's exciting news that we're going to hear soon about the effectiveness of neoadjuvant chemo in high-risk prostate cancer patients. Maybe the robot could give chemo intraoperatively. And now... Let's hear from Ian Valor from Brisbane, who had some fantastic insights on how the landscape may be a little different in Australia for men with high-risk prostate cancer. We've got a, uh, a slightly different wrinkle, if you will, in, in the current uh, environment in uh, potentially high-risk prostate cancer in that we have an, a new novel imaging technology that's really taken off in Australia in the form of PSMA, PET-CT and PET-MRI, which uh, North America hasn't really embraced at this point in time. So I think... Uh, we are potentially using that as a routine staging of men with this sort of high-risk disease. And we can potentially identify with uh, greater accuracy men who have potentially metastatic disease to lymph nodes. 
which obviously changes their risks profile compared to standard of care imaging, which is really used for a lot of the trials in the US and, and even Europe at this point in time. The question is, uh, what do we do with those men who have potentially positive nodes uh, on, on uh, our advanced imaging compared to the standard of care? And can we then potentially use those imaging technologies to then uh, enrol men in, in trials such as neoadjuvant chemotherapy or or for further uh, you know, ad, ad trials. So we could enrich our patient populations for those that are more likely to respond. Correct, and, and that one of the issues obviously with uh, uh, even the CALGB trial that Dr. Eason was talking about is that those men um, essentially have non-metastatic disease on by definition to be enrolled, but they're high risk. So there's a, a proportion of men who probably won't benefit from having neoadjuvant chemotherapy. If you can potentially use either a a genomic risk stratifier like Decipher, there's a test in the US, it's not available in Australia, but that indicate a high likelihood of, of recurrence after definitive therapy or micrometastatic disease uh, picked up on advanced imaging. If we enrich for those men, maybe we will show that there's a, a signal for neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the right patients and improve survival in our, in our men. Mm, food for thought. In PSMA, we have this amazing imaging modality and we're not making the most of it with regards to pre-op staging or the role of its increased sensitivity in oligometastatic disease. I was recently at the ANZUP Prostate Cancer Concept Development Workshop and this oligometastatic disease state has been identified as a major potential space for us to do world-class research. If you have an idea for a trial, get in touch with me, ANZUP, Scott Williams or Ian Davis and let us know how we can change the world. I'm prepared to share the Nobel Prize. Next... I wanted to chat to Olivier Traxer about his talk on tips and tricks for using the Holmium laser during endoscopic stone surgery. Now, I thought I already knew everything, just ask my wife, but Olivier had some great tips. Unfortunately, Olivier was out of Canberra like a politician at 5pm, but Damien Bolton was able to outline his key points. Yeah, this struck me as a really good uh, presentation that he gave Joseph and something so central to our practice that we often overlook. Uh, To me... Turning on the laser is often just like turning on the light switch, but I think that was his main point, that there are subtleties to it and we should all learn to use the laser to optimise its settings for us and to optimise the management of each individual stone. I think probably his key points were the importance of setting the frequency and the energy and pulse duration to optimise the treatment of a stone in its setting to avoid retropulsion of the stone where that's important. We can do that, as he mentioned by increasing the pulse width and by using a smaller fibre. Olivier also spoke about how often we should trim the fibre. He did mention that the fibre tips should be trimmed with metal scissors every 10 to 15 minutes in order to optimise the clarity of the pulse from the end of the fibre and that also the fibre should be positioned about 3 to 4 millimetres beyond the tip of the scope. It makes sense that there's retrograde progression of energy from the fibre as well as anti-grade progression of it and positioning the fibre at that place will help minimise any damage to the lens at the end of the telescope. And does the size of the laser fibre matter? Uh, We all know size matters with everything, doesn't it? The key aspect of that is that with a smaller fibre, you've got increased density of energy, which will provide greater fragmentation of the calculus per pulse that's delivered. The key thing about the smaller fibre as well is that it increases the amount of fluid that can flow beside the fibre through the working channel and less retropulsion. Size matters indeed. The day we stop making size matters jokes is the day that saw palmetto actually works better than a tic-tac. Now let's chat to the antithesis of quackery and snake oils, our illustrious and immediate past president of USAN's Mark Frydenberg, 
who discusses his thoughts on the direction of USANS and some of the immediate and looming issues for Australian and New Zealand urologists. <laughs> Listen, thanks, Joseph. Two-year term has actually really been very... Um, it's very enjoyable, but also very challenging at the same time. I think from just a, an organisational and personal viewpoint, I mean, it's, it's been a, a terrific personal growth thing for me. Um, you know, it, it certainly does uh, allow you to, you know, meet a lot of both national and international people, uh, incredi- you know, incredibly talented and smart and intelligent. And, uh, you know, they do become your friends, but you learn a lot from them as well. And also the process of actually just running the organisation. Actually, you learn a whole lot of skills that you don't have previously. As an organisation, though, we've really developed a lot. I think this uh, meeting uh, clearly highlights that. But our stature, I think, in the international urologic community has actually increased enormously. And I think a lot of that has been due to a lot of the work that the society's done in building bridges with a lot of the international organisations. I think at home the, the, the challenges for urologists are to really adapt to the current working environment in 2017. I think in the past, if you go back, you know, five, ten years ago, we largely self-regulated. You know, we, you know, we would, you know, we would be sort of doing any procedure that we thought that we were able to do. Uh, we would perhaps as a group examine, you know, our, our, our own outcomes, you know, complications, morbidity, mortalities. Um, costs really weren't looked at uh, and, and so on. But all of it was pretty much done as sort of an internal process by ourselves as a group of responsible professional specialists. But the world's changed. And the problem is, is and it's probably changed because of the fact that medicine's expensive. Um, uh, health funds and private health insurance, at least in Australia, is I think viewed as a fairly poor product by a lot of people currently uh, because of a lot of the excessive costs that they have to pay on top of their fees that and you know most other insurances the insurance covers for whatever it is they go through that's not the case in health insurance. So the good old days of self-appraisal are over which is a shame because I think I'm a very good surgeon and comedian. They say laughter is the best medicine but it tends not to work for impotence. So governments now are beginning to sort of get involved in that space and saying, well, we need to have a very transparent way of knowing which people can do what safely. And that's why, for example, in New South Wales, there's a scope of practice commission that are doing a project to try and work out what is core urology procedures that any urologist can do, but what are some procedures that can't be done. The government is aware of our different competencies and outcomes between surgeons and monitoring or regulating our scope of practice is on their agenda. Mark continues. Fees are another issue. So you've got private health funds like Medibank Private, Bupa, that are now publishing patient outcomes, not only with regards to outcomes of surgery and complications, but also out-of-pocket costs. So they're very transparently being looked at by all of the health funds. And then at the end of the day, you've also got surgical complications and outcomes which again are being looked at by various organisations. There's uh, there's a group called the Health Roundtable that are looking at this data. You've got the health funds that are looking at this data as well. So you know that paranoid feeling you have that someone is watching over your shoulder? Well, they are. So how should we react? Now, the initial reaction of even myself as a practising urologist, but really all urologists, is that of discomfort because of the fact 
we're not used to having people looking over our shoulder at what we're doing. We're used to regulating things ourselves and it's a bit of an affront on our own professionalism because we've always viewed that we handle ourselves ethically and appropriately and do make good decisions for patients and do good surgery and we do uh, the problem is is that we have to unfortunately have to get over the discomfort um, we have to adapt to this this is not going away all this stuff is is going to remain because for the community it's expensive and it's important we need to be very proactive in this area and actually have a seat at the table, otherwise data is actually going to be misinterpreted. But the reality is, is that if, like most urologists, we are practicing good quality urology, we're making good decisions for our patients, we're charging them fairly, and we're um, getting good outcomes for them with minimal complications, there's actually nothing to fear about this process because they will actually see how good we are as a profession. Thank you, Mark. And we really do need to be prepared for further oversight and government regulation. And it sounds like the leadership at USANS is well placed to represent us so we can continue to offer the best care for our patients. Please go to the website, talkingurology.com.au, for the unabridged version of Mark's talk. So that ends the second part of the USANS conference highlights. Please tune in to the third and final part where we will hear from myself and Shankar Siva discussing the role of metastasis-directed therapy or focal therapy in oligometastatic disease, Laurie Klotz arguing why surgery is better than radiation for localised prostate cancer, and we will also hear from the award winners from the conference. I'll also chat to Kath Schubach about the highlights from the nursing conference. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ipsen. I needed a password eight characters long, so I picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarves.